Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's that is you, Kathy Cash. We're going mm -hmm. to the right meeting now. Okay, we're in the right meeting. Okay, so try to look at now. Still sent. There we go. Mm -hmm. All right, you good? You in? Sorry about that. Okay. Not really. So, people, so two people have entered the waiting room. You just, you just entered, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. The job is ready to go now, so no, anybody else shouldn't have to wait. Okay, okay, so now they'll just pop up, mm -hmm. and then I can just start I can start recording? Mm-hmm. Okay. You're actually already recording. I'm already recording. Gotta let me in. Uh, it, still, it still says you're not in? It says three people have entered the waiting room. It says C waiting room. You want to press the waiting room? Yes. Everybody's here. What's up, all? Hello. 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 How are you? How are you? Hello, Hello. <laughs> I can hear you. Okay. We're just ensuring the technical stuff right now. Do you want me to mute myself? Please. No. I can see him perfectly. Mm -hmm. He can't hear you. One sec. You can't. Hold on, I've got to put my headphones. For some reason, he can't hear you. The whole arm in your video. Okay. Want to try the headset? Yeah, try the headset. Okay. Okay, hello? No. You still can't hear you? No, you can't hear me. He's on mute. He's on mute, but can you hear Kathy? Yeah, she's the host. So she should she has the capability to Okay, you hear Kathy? I can hear her. I can hear her. I mean, I don't know. No, not through here. Let's work on him. Hello? I can't hear you from Okay. Yeah, can you hear me? 
Okay. I hear you. Oh, okay. All right. Can you hear me? That's Belinda. Gary, can you hear Belinda? I hear Belinda when okay. while I heard. <laughs> I hear Gary. Okay. We got some action. <laughs> Belinda, this is Gary. Gary, this is Belinda. Nice to meet you, Gary. Meet you as well. Is there an echo? No. I don't have an echo. Okay. I do, but it's okay. <laughs> Okay, we're gonna get this show I love your hair. I'm going to put.
It's my pleasure, Belinda T. Harris. Thank you for having me today, Kathy Cash. It's a pleasure for you to be here. Um, unfortunately, He's still there. Hello, Gary? Go on the chat. Oh, there he goes. Okay. So we're going to go ahead and get into the questions because we only have a little bit amount of time. And Melinda, you know, and I have a lot of questions about this. You can just jump in any time. You know, I just, the number one question that I have is what do you think would be was the difference between the death of George Floyd and many other previous deaths at the hands of law enforcement? What, what's so different about this time? I just think that um, there is, I think that there has always been civil unrest, but I do think that um, we were all dealing with COVID and everybody dealt with that in a different way. But um, throughout the nation, you've seen the quarantines, people having to be home, not going to work, the children not at school. So I think that it gave the opportunity for people to get more educated and aware of current events that are going on. So I think that um, COVID also has a big thing to do with this, the pandemic in the current state of where our nation is as well. So I, I think that uh, this may have been, as they say, the, the straw that broke the camel's back. well, I think that's why COVID is so important in this situation is because I think that even then people, you know, we all get caught up in our everyday lives and our everyday routines and, and beginning becoming busy. Um, and even when you're on social media, a lot of times you are exposed to people who are like-minded or giving you the same information that you already have. So I think that due to the pandemic, people had to, you know, be creative on the things that they sought out or looked for and things of that nature. I also think that um, while, while I think COVID was very much responsible for this, I also think that um, 
it took away from the distractions as was just indicated. But I also think the, the nation was watching the government fail on COVID and fail in a very particular way, right? It was failing for the very same community slash communities where um, police have failed uh, on this issue, right? And so I think, I think in a way we were actually primed for the kind of response that you see. Uh, I think that you watch um, people who normally wouldn't recognize either COVID or this issue just sitting in a place where um, th this particular mix of things caused this to happen. I don't think this could have happened uh, in any other way, right? So I, I think it's interesting that these two things collided, particularly given the fact that COVID-19 has something to do with the ability to breathe, right? Uh, and, and, and this uh, incident with George Floyd is an incident where uh, the compression was on a neck and he couldn't breathe. Additionally, too, um, to piggyback off of that, uh, a lot of people are still not working. Um, and not saying that they're outside uh, with the civil unrest and the protesting because they're bored, but a lot of people are not working. They're not um, anxious about getting up and going to work and things of that nature. So they have a little more time. They have a lot more time. <laughs> <laughs> it looks like they have a lot more time. They have time to protest now, and they have time to open up their eyes for things that have been going on for a very long time. I would agree with that. And also the younger generation, too, right? Um, a lot of the high school and uh, all of the schools, basically, whether you were in kindergarten or getting your Ph.D., graduations were canceled. Um, so a lot of the, the younger generation who would normally at this time be seeking their college trips, their college vacations, planning their next steps. Um, because all of that, they, they, did, they weren't allowed to have that. I think that also causes for a lot of civil unrest as well. Yeah. yeah. Looks like a perfect storm. Definitely yeah. a perfect storm. Looks like God's storm to me. <laughs> well, folks, you know, I have a series of questions that I'm going to try to zoom through them. Um, my second question, you know, why do you think the citizens of the world are so passionate, you know, passionately moved about, about the death because it's just, it's been so many deaths like this, but it was this death that the world watched and, it, and they got behind it in such a passionate way. You got all nationalities, you got 18 countries, you got every state in the United States protesting. I, I, once, I think it goes back to the same answer I just gave. I just think that with the the circumstances that happened before the incident everybody was already watching everybody closely right we were like well what are they doing in this country and is so and so on quarantine and what are they doing in florida everybody was already watching everybody and the steps that different local and state officials were taking not even on a nationwide but local and state officials were taking so i think that people's eyes were already open um, and I do think that people were unhappy, whether they believed in COVID or not, there were people on both sides of the aisle who were unhappy on, on the way it was being dealt with. Um, and they were also unhappy with the economics of it and, and a great concern and worry. So I think it's just the perfect storm. I think that it, it's a totality of the circumstances, as we say in our job, my job. I, <laughs> yeah, I, I think that that's all true. But I also think it's something about the way that this happened, right? So. The, the amount of time you watched him uh, with his knee on this individual's neck, the way that his posture was with the hand in the pocket, look, seeming to look almost into the camera as if to be defiant, 
to have him on the ground the way you might have just regular game. I think all of that is offensive to people in a way that I think all of these things should be offensive. But to, to see an officer, uh, you know, unload his gun, it's not, it's not the same thing. I mean, he, he, he had him and caused the exploration of this individual and seemed to be nonchalant about it in a way that you don't always see, even when they're doing something that you know is wrong. Yeah. And a lot of these things are not recorded. And a lot of these things and these incidents happen in the evening. This was broad daylight, a spectacle with an audience. It's a lot of different dynamics. I can understand that. You know, but is the outcry from national police reform viable and sustainable? What I mean by that is this is this gonna fade away? Mm -hmm. I, I think, uh, I'll, I'll jump in. I think that um, that question is to be answered by each loca location where people are, right? So, but I, I have been activist and activist for, for 28 years now, and I've seen all kinds of things. Uh, and I, I'll take you back to, I know it's not the same subject, but just to the way that people perceive themselves in the moment. I'll take you back to Occupy Wall Street. I remember when Occupy Wall Street was a thing. I remember going down to Wall Street, and I was, I don't know, 10, 12 years in activism at that point. And I remember people telling me, we're never going home. We're going to stay here until things change. It's not happening. And they stayed there for a long time. And the people at the very end of Occupy Wall Street stayed there way longer than any of us probably remember. But they're not there right now. Things have gone back. Um, I, I remember other protests where people said similar things. Um, I think that it is difficult to maintain the fight, right? And, and, and so I don't know if this is permanent. I think there's a there's a moment right now where people should be, particularly people in positions like mine, looking to act right. And then there's what the long term. But in terms of sustaining, this work is not just about police accountability. This work is about police accountability and all of the other things that come under um, the heading of dealing with the roots of racism and white supremacy that poison all of the soil that everything grows about. Um, I can just say here in Clark County, Las Vegas, Nevada, uh, that um, this is something that has been going on for a long time, and we have been chipping away at it. So I am a chief deputy public defender, and I've only ever been a public defender, and I've been a public defender for 14 years. And here in Clark County, we have a number of public defenders on the ballot running for judge. Um, a lot of them are black women and a lot of them are women of color and I think that that came about due to seeing things and not believing that things were correct and so I do think that change is happening it's just maybe not as I said I, I got my two friends John Pirro and William McCurdy uh, combined the three of us is that you know we're no longer hashtagging we are now planning so we are protesting in the streets and taking the political seats. So we are switching it up um, in a sense of there are activists and protesting, but we are also making systematic changes by putting our names on ballots. Well, to, to Senator Winfield's credit, I mean, New Haven, Connecticut is a shining example of the way it should be. Um, I've heard nothing but good things about New Haven, Connecticut and racial relationships. 
So my perspective is different than probably most people's about where we are. I think most people do look at um, Connecticut as leading on many issues in the criminal justice sphere. Um, I, I'm, a, I, I'm one of those people who is about uh, if we're not whole, we're not whole, right? So, so from my perspective, uh, we're not there yet. Um, but how, how we've gotten here is people have chosen to do the work and not, uh, I'm not concerned about, I should be probably, but I'm not concerned as much about the next election as, as maybe I ought to be. Uh, I've engaged in direct battle with police unions. I've engaged in direct battles with some of the people who are my allies um, and, and have been willing to put my political capital on. And so that, that's how we've been able to uh, do several of the, the pieces of reform we did. We did a significant bill in 2015 and a significant bill last year. And I'm currently engaged in a battle with some people in my own party to do a bill right now. Um, and I think that's how you make progress. People willing to, to not just sit in the office, but to use the fact that they are in the office to move policy. And that, that leads me to my next question. What type of laws um, can be put into place to basically um, stop this? What, what kind of laws can be put in place to protect our citizens from over-policing and police brutality? I'll let so, the, the senator answer that one. <laughs> yeah. So, so we've done a lot of stuff. I, I will say that um, back in 2015, um, we did a bill that uh, started outfitting uh, our police with body cameras that had that called for separate prosecutors from the, pro the prosecutorial district um, that said that if an officer was being investigated and she or he, uh, you know, sometimes what they do is they'll leave their district and go somewhere else. They can't do that. And if, they, and, and if they do that, they can't be hired in the state of Connecticut and on and on. And then in 2019, uh, we expanded upon the separate prosecutor to go to the Steve, uh, chief state's prosecutor, also being able to take over those investigations. We took those body cameras and the, the footage that would be in the body cameras and forced them to be released within uh, 48 hours of the officer reviewing it or 96 hours period. So um, that is <laughs> that has upset some police in my state. Um, and uh, we've stopped co co uh, police from shooting at cars. Um, and we uh, also um, passed the first prosecutorial transparency bill in the nation where all of the information that you can't get out of prosecutors is now public information. So we so that's why people say we've done a lot here. And it is true we've done a lot. But I still think we have a lot more to do. Because I think, you know, and I'm, I'm coming off script here, but I think that your city will probably be looked at very closely as what are they doing that we're not doing. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> we ready well, to get the phone to start the room. <laughs> more than we already have. <laughs> uh, what also, what changes can we implement? in regards to training and diversity in the police department? I'm gonna let the senator, these are all policy questions, so I'm gonna let him jump all over that. <laughs> you know, look, I, I think there's a, a couple of ways of looking at training. There is looking at whether or not we have uh, training on implicit bias, uh, training, on the hist training on the history of police, which actually has impact uh, in other forms of training. And then there's looking at who does the training, right? So is the, is, is it a question of uh, the training is bad, be, uh, bad or good because it exists or doesn't exist? Or is it uh, that you have the training, but 
uh, officer who we all like in the in the, the force is doing the training, but they're not actually qualified to do the training. You see that in places, right? And so, you know, the effectiveness of the training has something to do with the trainer as well. And so uh, the call here in Connecticut is for more hours, uh, more types of training, and that's one thing. But I also think wherever we look at this across the country, we should be making sure that the people doing implicit bias training, for instance, actually know what the heck they're doing. They actually have been trained to do this. They actually are certified to do this. Uh, and so I think it can make a difference, but it matters who's doing the training. Excellent point. Well, we're what measures can we um, create to bridge the community concerns with proper policing? Because right now, I don't think they trust what the, what's being instituted. So I'll jump on that one too. So one of the things that I'm looking at currently in the bill that I'm working on is um, a completely different way. So I told you that in 2015, 2019, we uh, brought in independent prosecutors from the district, but they're part of the prosecutorial system we currently have. Um, I'm looking at creating, potentially creating a, an inspector general that's not connected to uh, the system we have and, and making it so that uh, complaints automatically would go to the inspector general, right? So it bypasses the normal structure we already have. Um, and, and there's no way to peek into that if you are uh, the current police, uh, the, the, the police as they currently are constituted. Um, you know, that doesn't initially give anybody uh, necessarily a feeling that things are better, but what it does say is we are looking to do things differently. And if it actually um, means that prosecutions actually happen uh, when they're supposed to, I think the public would begin to uh, give some of its trust to that system. Um, no, I think that all these things are, are very uh, brilliant because I, we're not doing that here in Nevada as of yet. So I'm actually learning and listening on this. These are all policy. I don't do policy. I just do law. So <laughs> this is very uh, enlightening for me as well. Well, that's what happens if you have good policymakers and you have the correct people to enforce and make sure that it's followed. That's where the law happens at. So once the policy becomes the law and you have the correct enforcers, that's where it happens at. But first you have to make sure that you have the proper policy and lawmakers in place. Well, I have a few more questions. We have some time left and we'll get to them. How do you think racism has played a part with these unjustified shootings? <laughs> <laughs> I have to even laugh at that question myself. <laughs> I mean, I don't I think mean, you know if you if, if if we're having a real conversation, policing is what it is because of racism and white supremacy. Right. Whether whether, whether you're talking, about, its roots are in, in 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 the system that this country was built on. Its roots are in slavery, right? With the slave catcher, um, and and when we went to black codes, the reasons why we operated the way we did, and and policing today would like to credit itself as wholly different than that. But the problem is that it's not. And, and, so, and so how does racism play into it? I think we often think about the individual officer, but the culture has, has, has found its birth in, in, inside of the system, which is why I say as part of the training, the history of policing has to be a part of the training so that officers actually understand why their culture is what it is. And then we do that implicit bias training, some other trainings to break that down. 
And if we have punishments as well, then like there, there's a cut, like you, you know what, where you've been, you understand what you should understand about interacting with people and you know there's a punishment. Those things together work, but you can't do just one part of, of it because it just doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Because I, I just, this question is really for the people that are in denial, you know, because I had a follow-up question, and basically, what do you say to those people in the community or government that don't think that there's systemic racism or a systemic problem, that the critics that they think that these shootings are just casualties of a policing and crime-infested neighborhood? I, I was waiting to see if you had something to say, Um I, I would say that there's, there's an old saying, right? The, the last thing that the fish recognizes is the water it swims in. Right? And so, like, racism pervades everything that we do. And so it's hard, it's hard for people to recognize it because they're like, well, I'm not racist, right? So therefore, like, you don't have to be racist. The question is not whether you're racist or not necessarily. The question is whether you uphold a racist and white supremacist system through your actions. And you can do that and not be racist, right? So I think people begin by asking the wrong questions and therefore they get the wrong answer. If you, if you go back to a book that many of us read in high school, uh, uh, The Invisible Man, right? But like what you, what you, what you realize is that at the very beginning of that book, he's talking about how the individual doesn't see him, but the individual actually sees us, right? Like they see us, but they don't see us as a full human being. And so there are points at which, because of that, we collide. And this, this is the kind of thing we're talking about, right? People don't see the system because, well, why would they see the system, particularly when they benefit from it? But they know that something's not right for our community. They just can't and- recognize the fact that that's racism and white supremacy. And I don't even know. I think that sometimes we give people a lot of credit. I don't think a lot of people know that this is going on in the community. Um, And I'll just give a perfect example. I'm a public defender. And about a month ago, I took um, grits to work for some of my staff. They had never eaten grits and didn't know what grits was. Um, And so that shows you that they have not been exposed to my culture and things that I think are important and things and we had to have a whole conversation about it. And it wasn't that, and these are, you know, people with your doctorates behind their name. So I think that sometimes we are giving people a lot of credit saying, well, they don't see it or they know when actually they, they don't know and they don't see it because they don't have to live in our world. Um, and I think that if we were able to have an open dialogue, we could say, that different cultures live in different worlds and we need to co-mingle here together. And that's the problem. Well, you also yeah. have don't see it, um, not exposed to it, do see it, and don't want to see it. Yeah, I would, I would also say we have to be a little bit careful about these conversations that we have because one of the things that often comes up in these conversations is about the issue of training and how uh, these officers have to understand the, the, the communities they're police. Let, let, let me make sure that I, I make this clear to people. If you are telling me that when you take a white officer and you put them in a black community, you have to train them on how to understand that community because they don't understand the people in that community, but they can take in Dylan Roof. I can't believe that that officer is going to tell me I identify with somebody who walked into a church and shot those people. Because if you identify with that person, you have a problem, right? So, so the, the, the issue is, 
do you see people as human? Skin color is not what keeps us from seeing people as human, right? It's something to do with how you perceive black people, right? And that's not about, that's not just about whether you're trained or not. I don't have to be trained to see you as human. I may not understand your experience, but I can see, still see you as human. The same way I saw that person who walked into that church and killed those parishioners who you should not be able to identify with. And the reason why I say that is because I think sometimes the solution of uh, training is just a cop-out, right? It's a cop-out because no one should be able to see him. No one should be able to see the individual who was uh, in Connecticut and Massachusetts a couple of weeks ago stabbing people going up and down and say, well, I can bring this person in. And as a matter of fact, here, what they did with that white individual was they said, please come in so that nothing happens because your family's concerned about you. And yet I can't potentially cash a false check. And I wind up dead. I, I don't buy it. I just don't. And, and I think it's time that we started pushing back on the notion that there's some kind of magical training that has to happen for people to recognize that people are a human being. Yeah. Well, how do you retrain you know, officers or cadets or people that want to go into law enforcement, or just people in general, about the biases that they may not think they really have that really become a problem in everyday life? You know, small little things that build to be a problem. I mean, I this problem is just not, just not in the police department. No, it's not just in the police department, but in, in when, when we're talking about the police department, I think that's why it's important that the trainer is actually certified. You know, I've, I've watched some of these, these trainings happen, um, and they're sometimes given by somebody who doesn't even believe the stuff that they're training on. I, I, think, I think understanding how to train, understanding how to get people to uh, recognize their implicit bias is not something that, that it's not something that some of us could do, right? right? And we, we understand this usually in ways that others don't natively understand it. It's not, training is different than knowledge. Training is different than uh, understanding that there is a thing there to do, a thing there to know. And so we, we have to make sure that the people who are doing this training have actually trained people before, that they, they are capable of training people. Coming down to my final question, and this one's a big one. How do we heal and move forward from the death of our brother George Floyd? I think we keep being uh, reactive, and while being reactive, continue to be proactive which is making sure that we're voting, educating ourselves, making sure that we have good policy makers to get some good laws on the books, making sure that we have the correct judges, um, the correct prosecutors and public defenders and people in place to, you know, for the accountability piece of it. I think a big part of it is that they feel like this happens and people feel like, oh, this is okay, nothing's going to happen to these individuals. So I think that we continue to be uh, reactive and outraged about it, and but also be proactive in school, educating yourself and voting. Yeah, I, I think that um, people often think we've healed when we haven't. We've moved on, but we haven't healed. And I think the way that, that healing can begin is when these issues are addressed. And when these issues are addressed in such a way that they actually address the root. Because I, I don't talk about roots. There's one root. It's racism. Or you, you can talk about white supremacy, whichever one you want to talk about. But that's the root. And that means that 
uh, yes, we have to do policy directly on the issue of police accountability, but we have to go back and chop down the root that is at the, the foundation of this society. And you see it in, in issues of housing, you see it in issues of education. You want healing, that's what it is. Because the reaction comes from the fact that people haven't been heard in terms of policy at any level when you're talking about black and, and brown communities. And even if you look at people who seem to have made it, they still have to experience what it is to walk through this world in that black skin. They have to experience what it is to be a person who's driving along uh, the highway and pulled over, right? There's no special license plate that says, but I'm a special black person, right? So like, if you want healing, those things must be addressed. Otherwise, what we're doing is moving on, but you still have the possibility of an inflection point where you have an explosion. This was the explosion. This was the perfect storm. You know, I'm getting to my final question, but before I go there, you know, I think what's so tough for people to take again is that this was in broad daylight with witnesses, 17-year-old Miss Frazier, if it wasn't for her, we would not have the evidence. It would just have been another story, possibly. And I think that people's outrage is because everything that we were told that this happens, they saw. And even with uh, the young lady in Central Park, we were told, or they were told, that this happens, particularly to black males. But now we saw it in HD, <laughs> able to share it and able to conversate worldwide. I think that has to add to it. Yeah, yeah, I, I would agree. I would agree that seeing a being able to replay it over and over again, being able to stop it and like, all of that adds to this. And, and, and as we said earlier, the fact that there aren't many distractions that normally exist right now. And so people who don't normally see what's going on in the news, people who don't normally have the time, they may have heard of it, have not actually watched this. And I think, I think it offends people. I think it offends people who didn't know they would be offended by this. And that's why you see the reaction. You see communities that haven't protested on anything, protesting on this, because people are offended by it. And, and, and I think this is what I talk about when I talk about waking up, right? People are waking up from the American dream, but it's not the uh, white picket fence. It's the dream that we are the equal society that we would like to say we are. And when they wake up and they see the reality, they are offended by that, whether they are white or black. Now, of course, there are people who are perfectly fine with, with what's happening. But I think a lot of people today look at what's, what they see on television and they're like, that can't be done in my name. And so that's why you see what you see. And I really am offended. I'd like to add to the fact that they brought up our brother George Floyd's criminal record as if that, that was an issue. You know, we watched a man's life being snatched from him in broad daylight in an open atmosphere where everybody could see, but now he's being villainized. I thought that was uncalled for and I thought it was disrespectful. But I think that's also um, part of society's problem. Just because somebody has a criminal record doesn't mean that they, they're being villainized, right? Everybody makes mistakes. So I think that that's a transforming of the mind that society has to have. Just because a person has a criminal record, so what? That doesn't mean he's a villain or that he's being villainized. That means he made mistakes in the past, like we all have. Yeah, but it seems to be conveniently used in a lot of these cases to say, oh, well, this wasn't a good person. And so, I think that's why I'm, go ahead. No, no, I'm sorry. I, I, think, I think 
it calls us into question and not them, right? So, you know, our society has this this thing that we like to tell people, you do the crime, you do the time. My mom used to tell me when I was a kid, you, you commit a crime, you're going to do the time, and I'm not coming to visit, right? Uh, but she didn't think that that meant that for the rest of my life, I would be pinned as a criminal. She thought that that meant you go to jail, you do your time, you move on. And I think that's what most people think because they don't understand how the criminal justice system works. They don't understand what happens to your life after you come out. And so when you have a, an instance like any of these, the first thing that they try to do is figure out how can we create in the mind of people the fact that you are something other than a human being. And the easiest way in our society is to be one of a few things, black, right? Well, something must be going on there, a criminal, right? They, but exactly, they're check boxes you can mark. And so every time you see one of these, they go looking for a criminal record. But if those people aren't in prison, to me, that indicates that they have done their time, they paid their debt to society, and they are now a returned citizen, not, a, not an ex-offender, not a former inmate, they are a returned citizen. Exactly. Treated the same and treated as a full human being. And when you treat them as a full human being and this happens, you should be offended by the fact that this happened to a fellow human being. Exactly. That's why I said it's the transforming of the mind with the public where everybody's so outraged but still use the word, oh, they're treating them like a criminal or a villain or something like that. We have to have a transformation of our mind as well mm -hmm. as, as fellow society in society. Absolutely. Well, I'm here to my final question. This is a great interview. Thank you. Melinda, thank you, Senator Gary. Thank you. Um, my final question is, what can we do as a society to make sure this never happens again? I, I, I don't know that we can make sure this never happens. I think we can create a context in which in which if it happens, people have a reasonable belief that the, the outcome will be the outcome that it should be, that the right people will be uh, investigated, that the investigation will be fair, that uh, if it warrants a prosecution, that a prosecution will happen, that black people at some point in this country won't look at it and go, yeah, okay, not, not gonna happen, right? I think those are things we can do. Um, it would be wonderful if we could make sure these things never happened again. And I think you can reduce it by making sure that they're prosecutions because people think about consequences. But I think the most important thing is that people get to the point because we've changed policy where they can actually have trust in the system. I'm in the system. I create policy and I don't trust the system. If, that, if, no, if that's the case, then who, who is going to trust the system that looks like me? I appreciate your honesty. Belinda. I'm I'm the same way. That's why I'm a public defender. <laughs> well, folks, thank you. I mean, if you if you have anything to add, this was such an important and highly anticipated show. I didn't take my mock commercial, but I guess uh DJ something will edit it out. <laughs> and it will air on live radio and also KKB. Uh, Senator Gary Winfield, thank you for the honor and privilege to have this interview. And I think anyone that's listening has come out of it more enlightened and more hopeful than before. So I know I have. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Me as well. Folks, that's our stuff, the Captain Cash Show. This was our first show of a series called Enough is Enough. 
at um, the second show will be June 17th. We have Black law enforcement from all different agencies. We want to hear their perspective on this issue. Um, these are dedicated law enforcement officers, people of color, uh, and it has to be very difficult for them to be in this predicament. And I'd like to hear their perspective. So again, the next show on this series, uh, Enough is Enough, is June 17th. And I will be putting out the advertisement for that. I'd like to thank my guests. Thank you, Belinda Harris. She is here, a public defender here at the Clark, uh, in Clark County in Las Vegas, Nevada. And thank you so much to the Senator Gary Winfield of New Haven, Connecticut. Thank you. God bless you guys. You too.